Good morning. It's good to be here with each of you. Welcome to our guests. Good to have you all here and all the people that are normally here. Glad for the opportunity to be together. I'm grateful for uh, continuity that's happened in my study time and in the scripture reading and in uh, where you took that, Judson. The message this morning has this as a title, and one of the things that you may remember from the scripture reading was that Jesus is the door. There is, uh, he is the means by which we come to God, and then as we were reading there in Matthew 27, Jesus' death and resurrection, that is the path to God's presence, and so very grateful this morning for that possibility to come into God's presence other than in judgment. Everybody will come into God's presence at some point. Uh, the question is, how do you meet him as a savior or as it only a judge? And we have the opportunity to decide that now. I'm so grateful for that. One of the, one of the scenes, there's not much in the Bible that I would really have liked to have seen, especially Old Testament. I, there's parts of Jesus' life in that era that I could say, yes, I really would have liked to have seen that, but to actually have lived it, uh, there's parts of that that really are a little bit frightening. But there's one piece of it, if I could have been there, I would just love it. It would have been awe-inspiring. That was to be in the temple when the veil split from top to bottom. And mankind now had access, full access to Jesus, to, to the presence of God. There's a tumbling of thoughts that have been going in my mind as I think about sermons, and they're kind of in this vein. This is the first one of several. But who can stand in God's presence? What is it? mean to be pleasing what does it mean how do we please God uh, it's it's in that vein that my thoughts have been going today in thinking about standing in God's presence who can go there and survive who can go there and be there with him without dying as a result of God's holiness and our fallenness you know, we live in this fallen world broken, carnal nature, a fallen man, and we have Almighty God who is very distant from that. Hear me what I mean by distant. His holiness is very distant from that. He is an ever-present God. He is everywhere. He is always present, but His character and His presence cannot allow any of that brokenness and fallenness into His, His holiness can't allow that into His presence. So how do we come to the presence of God? And where I'd like for us to go is Psalm 24. And I'd like to ask for a volunteer. Uh, Vincent, would you maybe get a mic and hand it to John? I think you would do a fine <clears throat> job of reading a few highlighted questions. And 
I'd like for that, uh, the reason I'd like to have John read those as we read the rest of it, I'm going to read it all together. So I'd like for you to hear the questions and the answers that follow. And I think that may be a, a helpful way of just hearing it. So we're going to read Psalm 24, and there's three places where there's a highlighted in yellow. John, if you could please read those portions. Altogether, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is this King of glory. Amen. Thank you, John, for reading that. And thank you all. I want to bounce back up here to verse 4. This is verse I'd like to key in on, and I feel like I have a lot of branches and quite a few leaves, but I feel like this idea is still leafing out, and I pray that the Spirit of God will make leaves grow on these branches this morning. Uh, What does it mean to have clean hands and a pure heart? That is what is said, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, who can go to his holy place, We're going to come back at the end of our time together here, and we're going to end with the final verses, looking at a a different aspect for just a minute or two. But this is us going to him, people going to the presence of God. He has clean hands, and I left a blank there because I want to emphasize the and. Clean hands and a pure heart. It's not an either-or thing. It's both. There's an and there. And then we get a little descriptor. I think these are reflective of the clean hands and pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. And that's in the King James, the way that I memorized that as a child was, who's not lifted up his soul to vanity. And I find this a, an interesting perspective on that. Idols are very vain. The gods of this world are very vain. They're empty. They're shallow. And that's the tenor in which this is said. Somebody who doesn't let their inner being go to that and have those vain idols, that emptiness, nor sworn deceitfully. I'm amazed at how offensive the untruth is to God. This is one of those descriptors of that clean hands, pure heart. Someone who tells the truth. (laughs) 
Think about the setting here. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in it, that's the fullness. Everything that God made, it's his. It says he's the creator. He founded it upon the seas and established it on the waters. We're dealing with the almighty God, the creator of the universe. He is perfect. He is holy. And now the world broke. And we have the question, who can come into his presence? And it's those who have this clean hands and pure heart. One of the things I wanted to do as we examine this, and I'm going to spend just a little bit of time here. This is one of the places where there's a lot more leafing out that can happen. I don't profess to know all the ways that the next passage is going to apply to you. There are ways in which I want to say that's not us because it's talking about the Pharisees. And yet there's things in human nature and in uh, our experience, I think, that intersect with what we see in the Pharisees. And once again, ignoring the truth doesn't change it. It just simply means I'm not letting it impact me. And so the goal here is to seek for truth and to look at what do we learn? What does it mean to have these clean hands and pure heart? And what I'd like for us to do to begin with is to go to Matthew 23, and I have most of it on the screen here. Uh, actually, I have the... Turn to Matthew 23. You're going to want to be there if you don't have it. I don't have all the verses on the screen. I have the ideas there, but I'd like for you to see it as we read through that. But this is a setting where Jesus is dealing with the scribes and Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And remember the Pharisees, at least some of their sects, they were at the top of the religious ladder when it came to understanding the Old Testament law. They had written many man-made things to go after that, uh, what, do I, what is the number? 700 some other commandments other than what God had. It was a fairly lengthy list. And they, they were very detailed in that. The scribes were very careful as they copied the law. Every detail had to be correct. These are the people. They should know. But what does Jesus say? And I want to start it towards the end. We're going to go back and look at the context. But I want you to notice, beginning in Matthew 20, uh, 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now look at what he says. He gives two analogies. You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish. It's like you're washing dishes, and all you do is you wash the outside, but inside they're still dirty, and now he, he makes the analogy for them. You are full of extortion and self-indulgence. So he's telling them that you make it look good on the outside, but on the inside, your heart and life is a mess. It's dirty. It is unacceptable to God. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. I would hate to think what our cupboard would look like if the platters and saucers would only get washed on the outside. That's typically not even the dirtiest portion of the dish. 
It's the inside that needs cleaned up. And that's what Jesus is taking them to task for here. He does it again in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but, are in, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Did the Pharisees have clean hands? I think they did. Did they have pure hearts? No, they didn't. And I'm saying that in a blanket statement. I'm sure there's exceptions. That is not a uh, universal condemnation. But Jesus, in his description of them here with the whitewashed tombs, it's like you've got decayed bodies. You've got dead men's bones inside. And you've got the outside. You've got the granite. You've got the marker, the engraving. You've got all that polished up and looking good. But inside, dead men's bones. God wants clean hands and a pure heart. And he talks about the hypocrisy here. Uh, we're going to go back earlier in the chapter and take a look at that. It's, but hypocrisy is when... Hypocrisy is an offense towards God. It's saying and not doing. And we will see that in a little bit from the Scripture. It's very specifically what Jesus says. One of the, if you go to Matthew 6, don't turn there. Just I'm telling you this is where it is. Do a study sometime and look at the first part of that where Jesus is talking about the way people do things, the way we do things, and he says in, in different ways, saying you have your reward now or your heavenly Father will reward you or there's no reward in heaven because you have your reward now. But this whole idea of rewards and convenience, I think, plays into this clean hands and pure heart. When we do it with the wrong motives and we do it for self, we, and we end up being hypocritical, we have to ask the question to reveal that, am I doing this for the reward of God or for a temporary, earthy, maybe self-reward that I gain now? Convenience, once again, it, the things that I do, are they for self? Are they in opposition or ignorance of the truth? I mean, who should have known what the right way was to live? If anybody in this time should have known, it would have been the Pharisees, and yet they missed it. Go back up to verse 1 of Matthew 23. I have a list here. I didn't put, it's a fairly lengthy passage. I'm going to read portions and point to verses. You can take a look at them. But this saying and not doing, it's what Jesus says there. He, he shifts away from talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he's actually talking to the multitude and to the disciples about the scribes and Pharisees. So it's like they're having to listen to Jesus talking about them. And I can imagine that was uh, very uncomfortable for them. He says in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Moses was, their te was the original teacher of the law as given to him by God. And now the Pharisees, they're the current teachers, and they sit in that same position. 
Jesus said about them in verse 3, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. He's saying be respectful, do what you're told, they have a position of authority, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not. And then he goes on to describe what that what saying and not doing looked like in the lives of the Pharisees. The first one is making spiritual life, or maybe even just life in general, difficult for people and not doing a thing to ease the burden. You'll find that in three different places in this passage, verse 4, verse 13, and 15. Verse 4, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go into yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Very, very strong words. This is one of those that I think needs some leafing out, and I don't know exactly how, exactly what that looks like. But for us, in deciding how we live, Jesus gave us the New Testament to show us how to live. And we need to be careful that when we determine how we live, and we give input to other people that we are doing in a way that is very consistent, that is consistent with what Jesus taught. And there's going to be things about that and the way it applies that people will be very uncomfortable with. And we need not apologize for it. And yet for us to be uncaring about the difficulty, I think is wrong on our part. We need to be gracious and loving people as we teach what Christ commanded us and how he instructed us to live. And so there, I think there's going to be a tendency in probably two ditches here. The one is the Pharisees were in it, and I think we need to avoid it. That is, we do not bind heavy burdens on men. The other ditch would be in reaction to it to where it says, that's going to be too hard for people. We can't do that. Well, I didn't write scripture. You didn't write it. We're called to obey it. And we have to be careful as we interact with people that we do not give them burdens that they can't bear what is not a good representation of Christ. Doing things for the praise of men. Back to verse 5. They, all their works they do to be seen by men. Oh, boy. There would be a lot of leaves we could put on that one, I think. Clean hands. I want to be thought of well by other people. Truth is, I should do right. It's no excuse to do wrong. But why do I do it? Do I only do it when people are looking? Do I want to make sure they notice and they see 
or do I do right just because it's the right thing? He gives some others that, that really come into this, the elaborate dress. You know, they had, the scribes and Pharisees, they had different things they would do. What's the word here? Um, pull that verse. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. I think this had to do with some of the Old Testament instruction about what the way the priests were supposed to dress. And they make that really, really noticeable. You know, you can't have that too small. We've got to make sure people know what our position is, make sure they know who we are. Goes along with verse 6. They had positions of honor that they were after. They loved the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. They, these were very self, uh, self-focused the things that they were doing. Or in verse 7, the public recognition, greetings in the marketplace. They wanted the special titles. They wanted to be called Rabbi, Rabbi. And then it's like there's this parenthesis. Jesus didn't do this on all of them, but on this one, he spends a little bit of time by saying, here's what you shouldn't do or should do. Verses 8 through 12, um, he says, don't be called a teacher. Don't be called a father. Now, that doesn't mean you can't use the word father. He's using that in a special title, uh, spiritual sense, like this is, this is an honorary thing. It's like the rabbi, the, the father, the, I don't know what you want to call it. Some people, whatever title you would give it that would, un, that would wrongly elevate somebody and seeking after that title, he's saying don't do that. In verse 8 he says, one, don't be called rabbi for one is your teacher, the Christ. And now to us he says, you're all brothers. We're not to be asserting ourselves over each other. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he he who is in heaven. And then he goes into verse 11 and 12. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The things we do need to be done in humility. He's giving instruction in the middle of this uh, condemnation of the way that they use special titles. The next one is taking advantage of the helpless. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and make long prayers. That's the other one there, but I'd like to uh, just comment a little on the devouring widows' houses. In these laws that they had written, there were ways that they could get around uh, and I don't know exactly how it was. This comes from Dr. Whitby, who was an old Bible scholar uh, many years ago. But he, his take on it was that in, within the old law that they had, there were ways in which the women were subservient to the men, and they would finagle these laws around to actually end up confiscating property from uh, helpless people, disadvantaged, the widows here specifically. Jesus takes them to task says, you're devouring that. You're taking from them. And then in the long prayers, uh, some of the traditions say that they would pray up to three hours. And it was, you know, how long the wordy the prayer was, was a really big deal to them. And I think part of the problem was here, if you go to 
Matthew 6, you'll find this. Part of the problem was they were doing it for men. They were doing this in public. If you would go to your closet or to a private place and you spend three hours in prayer, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not the problem. The problem was the way that they were doing it. And there was many vain repetitions. Scripture tells us that the Spirit sometimes prays and we don't know how to pray. I think that that's probably what's necessary when there's an extended time of prayer. Or maybe it's an attitude of prayer where we're just in God's presence, crying out to Him, communicating with Him. But God is not impressed by vain repetitions as it's described here uh, in, in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 7 says, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you need before you ask. Prayer isn't to impress God. It's not to inform Him of something He doesn't know. It's to get our hearts right with Him. Long prayers... Giving for the praise of man, that's another one we could talk about. Uh, let the Lord put some leaves on that one. Our giving, it's not for the praise of men, it's for the good of the kingdom. And once again, I think it's more blessed to give and to receive. Why? Because when we give, something happens in our hearts as well. That's a bigger blessing than the one receiving it off. And the swearing of oaths is the next one here. And this one, he also spends some, Jesus spends some extra time. Uh, found it interesting that he does this because at another place, Jesus says, swear not at all. And yet here he's taking the, the Pharisees to task and he's showing them, he's pointing out their inconsistencies about how it's, oh, well, if you swear by the gold of the temple, that's, that's more meaningful, but if, you're, if you swear by the temple, it doesn't mean anything. And that was the kind of convoluted thinking that they had. And he's pointing out their hypocrisy. Jesus said they're hypocrites in their approach to oaths. Tithing, but not practicing godly character. Verses 22 to 24. It's interesting here. He doesn't say that the tithing should not have happened. He says they're hypocrites and the tithing is, is not of value. He says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These, the tithing, you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. And so what Jesus is bringing into play here again is once again, this clean hands, this giving, it's something tangible, but it was not accompanied by the pure heart and he took them to task for that. So let's shift here. Uh, we've, uh, no, we're going to wrap up. The last verse was already talked about, the two analogies. Hypocrisy is like the partially washed dishes and the tombs that are clean on the outside. That is where Jesus lets that one land. You know, don't be like that. We've got to be clean inside and out. It's the clean hands and the pure heart. So let's talk a little bit, coming back now to those phrases, what are the clean hands? And I, 
there's a number of things that I have here that I think describe it. These are things that are easy to do, and many, all, we ought to do them. It, this is not a rant about uh, not doing the right thing. That's not what this is at all. We ought to do the right thing. But clean hands, it's the visible stuff, the, the tangible things that we can see. It's external, meaning it's, it's out here. My heart's on the inside of me. My character's on the inside. My... Spirit is on the inside. You can't see that, but you can see what I do. It's measurable. If I do something, you can tell how often or how much it was done. Or it, if you're in a task, what would it be? Planting a garden, building a building. You can tell how much of it got done. If you're working a piece of ground, it's very obvious what was done and what wasn't. It's measurable. And this clean hands thing is more easily changed by human effort. I'm careful how I say that because there is some change that hum humanly we can affect. There are other changes that are very difficult uh, to affect, humanly speaking. The Pharisees knew every jot and tittle of the law. They were very good at keeping it teaching it down to the minute detail, or at least that's what they presented outwardly. They likely hid areas that they didn't keep it. And I'm fascinated by the story of Jesus with the woman and caught in adultery. And I think most of Christian history would like to know, what did Jesus write on the dirt? Because whatever he wrote was very condemning and all of those people who were accusing the woman caught in adultery when he said, if you're without sin, you, you throw the first stone. Not a one of them threw a stone. Those words that he wrote were very convicting. So that's the, that's the external. I think even in that story, there was things happening on the outside. They said adultery is wrong. They were correct. Adultery is wrong. The woman was in sin. But what they were ignoring was what was the, was the condition of their own heart. One final thought here on the clean hands. Uh, in Timothy, there's this verse that sometimes people don't quite know what to do with. It says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And I will leave that to you if you lift your hands to pray or not. But I think one of the intents of that instruction is that when I pray and I lift my hands, I am presenting them to God. And they're right here in front of my face. Spiritually, are these clean hands? Can I come into the presence of God? I think it can be a very tangible reminder, a very visible reminder, do I come before God with clean hands? As Timothy says, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. God wants us to have those clean hands. The things that we do, we should do that. I, as I was preparing, I was wishing uh, for a flurry of examples to just help fill this one out. 
What are those clean hands? What are the things that you do that are right? It's easy to do. People can see it. You clean the church. You lead songs. You prepare sermons. You help with work days. You serve your neighbor. You take the new mother some meals. All of those things. That's clean hands stuff. It's good. We ought to do that. But never should it be done at the expense of not having the pure heart. What's the pure heart? The pure heart is not visible except as it is evidenced in action. But the actual heart, the actual motive, the actual relationship with Jesus Christ, you can't see that other than by ways that it's lived out. So it's not visible. It's an internal thing. It's not as easily measured. Now, some of the things that the evidences you see, you can measure some evidences. But as far as the heart itself, you really can't measure that in another person. It's even difficult to measure it in your own life. We think we know our hearts. And we ought to examine them and be aware of what's there. But it's not as easily measured. It's more intangible. And the pure heart is changed by divine transformation. There again, does that mean that no human effort comes into play? Probably not. There are things that people can do to affect their character. But if it's without divine transformation, it's going to be very shallow and probably be very inconsistent. But when the Lord gets a hold of the heart and makes it clean, that's a whole different story of something being cleaned up and changed from the inside. So what is the pure heart? Let's, let's define these things a little further. First, the clean hands. I only have one statement. It's just doing the right things. I, we could probably say more about it, but that's a, a fair summary. Doing the right things, that's the clean hands. The pure heart, there's more that could be said on that one, I think, that we ought to look at. And I'd like first to explore a little bit of that this morning. What is the pure heart? It's motivation that is God-oriented. Our human experience, our human existence is governed by God's kingdom why do you get out of bed in the morning? Have you ever thought about this? Probably shouldn't go too far down this road. But we become creatures of a routine. And you ever think about, why do I get up sometimes early and go to work? Why do I get up and do the same thing over and over again? Wouldn't it be more fun just to stay in bed longer and get up and eat when I feel like it and work a little bit if I can. And, but no, we become creatures of routine, being productive people, and we do these things. But why? why? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What motivates you to perform your daily tasks? Is it family, survival, goals? I'm going to suggest that the best motivation is purpose, and a calling in life, an understanding of this is, how, this is what God created me to be. And yes, it might mean getting up and going to work early. It might mean all those other things we do. It might mean that 
I'm cleaning the house, I'm taking care of children, whatever it is in those daily tasks, that's a purpose and a calling that goes way beyond self. And that's a motivation. We should do all to the glory of God. That's the pure heart. The pure heart has values that are driven by God's kingdom. Uh, last week in Sunday school, we talked a little bit about values uh, coming from the perspective of time spent, money spent, and the volume, not decibels, but other volume, volume of our speaking, the things we talk about, how much we talk about it. And I added one other one to that as I was thinking about, we probably just need to add brain space. Values are probably revealed by brain space as well. What do we give room for in our minds? Those are the things that are important. The pure heart, the life evidence is transformation of the inner man. And I want to pause here a wee bit and apply some of this. If we are truly focused with, on God, we're in a fallen state. We're being redeemed uh, in three different phrases in the New Testament. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Uh, two of those are behind us or present. What does it mean for you, you are being saved? What does it mean that you are being sanctified? It means that there's change happening. And one of the things I think we'd have to have, we can become complacent if we don't do this. We should cultivate. I was inspired by a sermon this week. This, where some of this comes from is just the whole idea of, do you want more of God? You want more than what you have? Sometimes I find that I don't think that way. I get caught in the routine and the rut of life. I need to cultivate to stay away from complacency, I need to cultivate that. I do want more. I do want more of God. I don't want more of self in the world. So have the vices and character deficiencies been changed by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit? There's three of them I'd like to just note that I think are key to all of our spiritual life. They're common in our life experience. The first one is pride. I heard someone say that the way you know if you have pride in your life is to look at how much you pray. I hadn't heard that one before, so I was musing on that. <clears throat> I actually think it has some good validity. If I don't pray that much, what am I actually communicating? Am I communicating that I don't need God very much? I think that's very possible. If I need God, what am I going to do about that? One of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to go to him and I'm going to ask him for more of me. I'm going to spend time in his word. I, I, I said those words right. I'm going to ask him for more of him in me. I'm going to seek that. I'm going to be looking for how do I become more like Christ? Pride is the elevation of self. Coming to him in prayer helps to minimize that. And, of course, it needs to be done in humility. Give me more of God. It's truly knowing God in a relationship, an intimate knowledge, not just a 
head knowledge. Somebody said it's knowing the author of the book personally, not just knowing what the book says. And I think that that's very applicable to our spiritual life. Another vice, greed. We are so naturally greedy, most of us anyway. It's, once again, we're born with that self-focus, that self-nature. The pure heart has done something with that greed to change that because it's been transformed by the power of Christ. Greed is giving more stuff. It's a lack of contentment. Maybe it's a fear of loss and a fear of future. I recently heard a story of a lady who was older, was extremely wealthy, billionaire kind of person. There's, as far as just normal needs for life, it would have been impossible, impossible for her to spend, to run out of money just with her needs. She had way, way, way more than what she needed. But people would observe her awake at night, pacing in front of the doors and windows in her house because she was worrying about her money and she couldn't sleep. On a smaller scale, I think that's what we tend to do is we get greedy and we get over-concerned with the things of life in a temporal fashion. A little bit like that billionaire lady, just worried when we don't need to. Now, we should be concerned. We should be good stewards. We do need to be faithful. I get all that. I'm not saying anything against that. But our security can't be in material things. It's got to be in our Heavenly Father who will take care of us. That's where our security is. The cure for greed is to be generous. You're greedy, just give. Get rid of some of your stuff. Give it to someone who can use it, who needs it. Uh, it's an excellent exercise for the human heart that tends to be greedy. Be a generous servant. Give more of myself. A very practical application. You do with this what you want. Uh, what do you present to the world around you? If you eat out and there's a place that you tip, Are you in the crowd that gets known as being a stingy person who hardly tips at all? For me, I, I'd, my natural bend is I don't like to tip. Why should I have to tip? They ought to pay these people enough to work anyway. It's their problem, not mine. That, that would be my bent. But I have changed some of that and believe that what I convey to that server who just got done serving me food, it should be gratefulness. And one of the ways we do that is by the kind of tip that we leave. Someone said this, what's the difference between a canoe and a Christian? Canoe's tip. I hope that's not true. I'm afraid it is sometimes. We mustn't be stingy with that. The last one here, the flesh versus the spirit. The flesh wars against the spirit. The flesh needs to be disciplined. In every way, 
We need discipline in our lives. Paul says, I bring, did he say, that, is that where he used daily? I daily bring my body into subjection? I'm not sure if he had daily in that phrase or not, but he said, I bring it into subjection. And we need to do that as well. With fasting, with prayer, I don't, my body doesn't like to fast. I like to eat. Most of us probably do. But that's a part of the spiritual discipline we ought to do and one I want to do more in. One that was convicting to me as I studied to do better with that, to discipline the flesh because it does war against the Spirit. The Spirit of God must reign supreme. There must be a passion for God, a compassion for others. Ephesians says, give no place to the devil. The context of that in Ephesians 4 is you put off the old man and he lists what that is and you put on the new man and at the end of that passage he says don't give place to the devil. We are changing and fighting against that flesh that is there. So I want to wrap up here with just a couple more slides. I want to come back to the beginning where we had started with this pure heart is one of the things that we're told to have for God's presence. I found it interesting. There's other passages that refer to this. I have them on the screen. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. What? For they shall see God. It, it's, this pure heart is a recurring theme for God's presence. Hebrews 12, 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That holiness doesn't say pure heart, but that is a, a close uh, description of that, is the holiness that we have to have. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And now look at this. He says, Don't take, Cast me not away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He's talking about the presence of God and asking for that clean heart to be in him uh, so that he can be in that presence. And then another one in Isaiah 33. It's a longer description. I don't have it all on the screen, but it talks about being developed in godly character. In the end of verse 17, it says, and your eyes will see the king in his beauty. So coming into God's presence, our heart condition matters. God wants to see us with a clean hands and with a pure heart. But we have that question, who can come into God's presence? The clean hands, the pure heart. And I want us to go back to Psalm 24. And I'd like for you to listen to the last part, uh, verses 7 through 10. It's repetitive. It asks the question, who is this king of glory? And it's accompanied by that phrasing of lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And I'm not sure that I know what all that means, but part of it is it's talking about those doors and gates being opened and then what's said, and the king of glory will come in. And for me, it's a beautiful picture in tying this back to the beginning of the question at the beginning of Psalm 24. Who can come into God's presence? It's a clean hands and a pure heart. Then we turn around and we say, open the gates, open the doors, the King of glory will come in. And I think it's talking about this. Invite Jesus into your life. 
It's the other side of that equation. We approach God, but he wants to transform us and change us. Invite Jesus into your life. Let him reign supreme in the heart and life, and the king of glory will come in. Uh, Who can stand in the presence of God? Well, it's the people that come to him in the way that he prescribes with clean hands. We do right. Our hearts are cleaned up. We're transformed by him, and we invite him in to live among us, to change us. I urge you, going forward through the week, through your life, look at a daily presence with God. Do I have those clean hands and a pure heart? If not, if you fail, don't be hopeless. It's not hopeless. Just turn to Jesus. He wants to change you and he'll walk with you in that journey. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you at the end of this time of looking at Scripture. Thank you so much for teaching us to live. These areas that are not spelled out specifically about what we must do, help us to have wisdom to know how to do it in accordance to your will that that keeps your principles. The, The areas where the Pharisees were wrong and lived wrongly. Help us to learn from that and to carefully walk with clean hands and a pure heart. The areas that are weak, that need cleaned up, we pray for the transforming power of your spirit to change us and to make us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.